Today, as we begin in Acts 7, I want to ask you a question to begin. What skill would you like to cultivate? You could pick anything that maybe you do okay now that you'd like to get better at. The skill that I would like to work on and get better at is to be a storyteller. I haven't had that in my experience very much, but I would love to grow at storytelling. Our kids and I, as I've mentioned, are reading the Wingfeather Saga, and there's this character whom I've come to love. His name's Poto Helmer. He's an old, rough and tough, peg-leg pirate grandpa, and he uh, is not the kind of old man who has short, pithy statements of wisdom and answers to questions. Rather, he says, sit down, have a cup of tea, and let me tell you a story and answer. And it's, it's wonderful. It's something that I lack in my life. He, he has a particular skill that comes forth uh, very clearly when he gets everybody enraptured in his story and, and you're at the edge of your seat and then he just dramatically stops, puts his hand into his pocket, pulls out a pipe and lights it before he finishes telling his story. <laughs> Wonderful. Everybody's on bated breath. <clears throat> and when I read Acts chapter 7, I think of this a sort of skill, Stephen is asked a super simple question by the high priest. Is it, is it so? Are these things true, what they're saying? And instead of giving a short, direct answer, which he could have done, he, desire, he, he desires and decides to spend nearly 50 verses giving the story of redemption and how that answers the question. What a wonderful way to give an answer. And for our outline today about how we're going to approach the text, because it's such a long scripture, it'd be ridiculous for me to try to cover it all in one go. And so we'll be here for a few weeks, probably. I'm not sure how many, but what I want to do is obey the principle of Jesus. The, The last shall be first. So we're going to cover 51 through 53. That's his final sort of exhortation. And what we will see there is all the themes that come out in the scripture. I think there are plenty of things that could be spent lots of time on. And I don't know all the themes that are here. But what I do know is the the last themes. You can think of this sermon sort of like a, a braided cord. There are three major strands of this cord and some of them are multi layered. And if you want to picture that in your head, this is the, the three strands that come out. I'm going to read 51 through 53 just so it's fresh in our mind. He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The first theme or strand that I'd like to point out is just this statement. You always resist the Holy Spirit. They had a history through this redemptive story that Stephen covers of fighting against and consistently opposing the things of God. Below, we really see two ways which this multi-threaded strand here 
comes out, they, they have rejected God's prophets. God has sent vokes, uh, uh, spokespeople to vocalize the, the truth that God wants them to know, and they did not listen. They rejected those. The, the ones who spoke beforehand about the Christ, they did not receive those. So they are rebellious and resistant in this way. They, they spurned the prophets and did not receive their message. And secondly, they also rejected the law. The, the law is God's word that is codified in a, a different sort of way than the prophets. We heard that the law and the prophets bear witness to Christ, though they rejected both of those, the prophets and the law. Though the law is there for their keeping, they ha- would have none of it. They rejected it. This will come through many times as we go through the next few weeks. Secondly, we see in that same sentence in 51, just at the very end, this tag at the end, you resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. There is a repeating of the sins of their fathers. They like to claim, as we'll see, lineage from certain fathers, yet the contention of Stephen is that They are following the sinful patterns of their fathers. They are not following the faithful patterns of their fathers. In fact, because they have been following the sinful patterns of rejection, they have now become traitors. They have denied the Christ. They have become murderers in hanging him on the cross. This is their pattern. Their fathers represent this theme, though they would claim to be tied to Moses, right? That's what we saw last time. Lastly, they are uncircumcised, stiff neck. They're uncircumcised in heart and ears. Wonderful statement. We'll draw all of these things out more fully when we get there. Just note that he says that the rejection that you see has a deeper problem. There is a uncircumcision of the heart. That is, there is a poisonous root that is bearing all this evil fruit. There is a spiritual problem underneath it all. So having those as the themes, be listening for these things as we try to draw them out fully, even more in context than we read here. Because Stephen, this is not, I would take this not as an MP3 recording. I, 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 presume he has more to say. And so as he uh, comes across different sections, this one's about all about Abraham, he would elaborate more and more for the hearer if they were willing to hear. And that's what I intend to do. Let's think about the context of this question in verse one. The high priest is recorded as saying, are these things so? And in context, these are in in light of the false accusations that were coming against Stephen. The question in context is, is it so that you, Stephen, are teaching that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple? Are you teaching that? Is it so that you are teaching the people that Jesus will throw off the customs of Moses, which have been handed down? down to us? And is he going to change the worship 
of the congregation? These are the questions that are being asked. And instead of going straight to Jesus, he does something else. In our modern era, I think we wouldn't like Stephen's tactic all that much. We like direct answers, but Stephen doesn't want to give that to us. Uh, he doesn't go straight to Jesus' teaching because he could have. He, he could have went straight to his teaching and said, yeah, Jesus said it here. Jesus said it here. Jesus said it here. And he could have rattled off quotes one after another. Yet what he decides to do is go through the history of redemption. In fact, he doesn't even get to Jesus by the end of his sermon. They, they're going to they're gonna stone him by the end, and he won't even get to answer the question. But he does something that's wonderful, which I think a lot of us modern people bypass. That is, in order to really answer the question sufficiently about Jesus and his teaching, well, you need the Older Testament. You need to understand who Jesus is in light of who the prophet said he was going to be, who the law said he would be, what it pointed to, what is the meaning of all these things. The, the truth of the matter is we wouldn't be able to make heads or tails about who Jesus was, really, unless we had the Old Testament. That's why the New Testament is littered all over. Littered is the wrong connotation, mind you. But it is chock full of... Old Testament scriptures, and then the teaching about what these things mean when Jesus comes. So he takes them back through a historical theology. He wants to take his hearers to understand the reason they're fighting today is no new problem. The reason that they've rejected Jesus and and are also rejecting Stephen is because They've always rejected God's work in their people. This is not just a problem that comes from Israel. This is a problem that comes from all humanity. And they're not seeing the connection. So he wants to take him back to the first principles and draw it out. Let us read verse 2 because this is where we're going to spend a lot of time here. And this is the answer that he begins to give. And Stephen said, brothers, fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Now, before we get any further, what we need to understand as we heard at the very end, he calls them to hear. You, you don't hear. Your ears are stopped up. They're uncircumcised. They, they do not hear. And so he begins his exhortation the same way, just the way he closes it. Hear what I have to say. The, the problem is not that they can't hear the words that he's saying. The problem is not that they have some physical blockage. He wants to focus their attention on that they need to hear spiritually. They, like all people, have become dull of hearing. This is the central issue in the universe. Man has not hearkened to the reality that is most needful for everyone in every age to really hear. That is, uh, I think if we're going to take a page out of Jesus' book, Stephen is saying a statement like, For those who have ears to hear, 
let him hear. Everybody heard the words, but they are to understand the issue. What is the central issue? What did Israel not hear? They did not hear the message of the glory of God. They did not understand God and his glory. That's why he begins, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. They were familiar with the story. They knew that God created all things in the beginning. They knew Psalm 19, which I prayed before we started, that all creation declares the glory of God, but they did not hear it in the way that they were to hear it. They did not understand the meaning of his glorious nature. And how do we know that? Well, Stephen's not making this up. He is actually just, I think, repeating what John the Baptist said. Let me remind you when John the Baptist is coming as a prophet and he's preaching the word of God and calling people to repent. He says these words to Israel as they come out to him, quote, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now listen to this and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Sounds familiar to our passage here. That's Luke three, seven and eight. What they had not understood, Stephen Stephen understood, and he knew how his countrymen thought. They knew that they would claim Abraham as their own. He is a friend of God. He is their father. But what they forgot is who Abraham was before God had called him. They forgot what he did. And somehow they came to believe just because Abraham is our father, that they had something then to boast about before God, or they were set apart different from other peoples of the world, that they didn't have the same exact need as all the rest of the nations. But Stephen knows their need and takes them back to Abraham. They are, as his children, the ones who should have understood better than everybody else what Abraham was all about. Clearly than all of uh, all the other people on the face of the planet, what it means to be part of Abraham's family, what it means to follow in his footsteps as as their father. <clears throat> Before we press on, let me just say we need to pay special attention to this as, as non-Jews as well, because the New Testament teaches extremely clearly and prominently that we as Christians are children of Abraham. Two texts, very crucial. Romans 4, 16 and 17 says, that is why it depends on faith. That's a key word that you need to hold on this whole time. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, Jews, but also to the ones who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Not just one. That is the whole world. Galatians 3, 7 and 8 says similarly, quote, know that then it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, 
In you shall all the nations be blessed. Beloved, every Christian is a true child of Abraham in the most fundamental way. Abraham and his story and the meaning of who he is is related to all the nations in that he is not the nice father from some other family, but rather he's our shared spiritual ancestor. We are related to him by following in the footsteps of faith in Christ Jesus. Israel did not understand this. They did not follow in the footsteps of his faith. And that's why we are told in Romans 9, 6, and 7, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. We are the children of Abraham who have faith in Jesus Christ. And so this message is the same for us as it is for them. It is the same and we need to take from it what Stephen is laying down. I'm going to give you four words as the outline for the next section just to keep your focus in the right place. Uh, Saw, heard, left, believed. That's our, that's our next place that we're going. Saw, heard, left, believed. This is how I'm going to unpack Abraham's story. <clears throat> First, Abraham saw the glory of God. That's verse two. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, which means in turn, he saw the glory of of God. This is actually what sets Abraham apart uniquely from the rest of the world. He sees God in a way that the rest of the world did not see him. He understood the magnificent brilliance and holy character of God, his attributes on display, which we call his glory. Shorthand, because glory can feel kind of vague. A quick definition is God's internal attributes on display. That's his glory. Mankind's universal problem, as Abraham's problem was, is that all stumbled in the darkness. All were not having the, the light of God's glory and recognized their own sinfulness. Man with all of his wisdom, though they sought God, did not come to know him, 1 Corinthians says. Abraham was the same as every others when he lived in Mesopotamia. He didn't search out the Lord and find him, one among many. He didn't earn anything from God as to please him. No, it is God who, great in his glory, yet with Humble condescension comes and reveals himself to Abraham and his eyes see. He sees his glory and understands that this is the true God. And then he hears, he sees, then he hears. He heard the truth here when his glory appears, we hear God saying, Quoted from Genesis 12, by the way. Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. God reveals himself and then speaks a, a word of command, a word of law to Abraham. 
Throughout this, you'll notice that I draw in this other point of faith. Abraham is going to continually, it doesn't make sense unless he's exercising faith. He sees an act of faith and then he obeys. But just in regard to his hearing, this glorious God who came down spoke to Abraham, our father, go out from your land and your kindred. That's the first part. And this is no small thing. Especially in a day without transportation, the way it's not like, hey, make a tour of the 50 states and then come back. No, this, this is a different sort of command that's coming to Abraham. The, the call of God was a huge matter. He said, in essence, abandon your countrymen, leave your heritage, forsake your land, your religion, your home, your lifestyle, and everything you've ever known. Leave it all. That's not all he heard. He also heard, come into the land, I will show you. Now, these are huge theological realities. Genesis unpacks this more. We just need to meditate on what this means. Why Stephen pulls this out. He says, on the one hand, go out, leave everything behind. And I'm going to show you a new land. What is God saying here? The God of glory wasn't simply bringing him to a new plot of dirt to inherit, was he? That's all he's concerned about is the land? No, not at all. What he's leading him into is a new life. He's leading him into a land where God's glory would dwell. He is leading him to a place whereby he would make him a new nation, a new heritage, a new people, a new everything, one in which God would dwell with his people. That's why Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10 says, he was looking forward to a city that's foundations, uh, that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Abraham heard that as a promise of, of a place where God would dwell. That is, God was doing a work of salvation for him. It's not merely about the land. Think of the universal problem that he's being called out of. He's being called into faith in the true God, away from the city of destruction in Pilgrim's Progress terms, and into the celestial city. That is the picture. He is going to bring this to him. And this applies to the nation of Israel first and foremost, but the picture and the meaning of it all is far extensive beyond that. It's to all the nations. And so at this time, what we need to understand is that this path of of faith is the promise for all of us. This pattern, um, this strand, which is specifically for Acts, is drawn out for Israel, also has bearing on us. This is part of the larger story of humanity. I encourage you not only to read Acts chapter 7, but to go back to Genesis 12 in this section. Um, Stephen quotes the, this first part of the verse. In Genesis chapter 12, he also is told something that I think we need to bear in mind in order for us to fully understand what is being said here. Pulling from Genesis chapter 12, I just quote, In you, Abraham, 
all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not only was the Lord calling Abraham out to provide a, a particular nation's salvation, but he was going to use him as a channel to bring the blessing of God to the whole world, to the whole cosmos. Is this not the whole problem that they missed? Is this not the central meaning of Scripture? I, I submit to you that the whole preaching of Stephen rests in this larger principle, which is played out in Abraham. The whole central message of the glory of God is that he created all things from the beginning into be in, in, in relation to him. Adam was made with his wife Eve, and he was brought into the garden, apart from the rest of the earth, into a special sort of place to dwell with God in his glory, such that when he fell, he was driven out of that place where God dwelt. But God had a plan. God had a purpose. God intended and said from the beginning that his glory is to cover the whole earth. Man and woman and their children are ha to have dominion over the whole cosmos, over the whole world. And that dominion was lost. What happened? Adam broke covenant. Adam lost that blessing. Adam, our father, fell. Adam, our father, was cursed. The blessing was removed in this sense. Our father, Adam, was driven out of the land. But God, through Abraham, and even through Adam, revealed that there would be a person, ultimately fulfilled in Christ, who would crush the head of the serpent who Adam fell to, there would be one who would bring them back into the land of God's special dwelling, that God's blessing would again flow as far as the curse is found, we sing at Christmas time. It is the experience of the few spiritual fathers. What they were to learn from this is that, well, not only Abraham, but if we go back, Adam received the the promise of <clears throat> of sacrifice that someone down the line would come and atone for sins god made a sacrifice for him and then covered him and kept him in good graces this he taught to his son abel who sacrificed in hope noah too as spiritual father entered the ark condemning the world to be judged he entered in that special place where God whereby God preserved him and Abraham in similar fashion having saw and heard the glory of God pursued him apart from his heritage apart from the world and went and followed after God so the meaning for Abraham is that his path is one of faith faith in God's promises faith in all that he does. So this last part, let me just make it clear or saw heard left left. He left his fathers and his heritage in Mesopotamia. He was called out of that land into God's land as it were. We as Christians just applying this have been called out of the world. We as Christians have been called and delivered into the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians chapter 1. Jesus said, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses it for my sake will find it. And we have left, like Abraham, the world for all the blessings that are in Christ. We have left him, uh, left all the things in the world because we know that the land ahead of us, that is new creation, new heavens and new earth, is found only in following after, leaving what our past behind, leaving our sin behind and following after Christ. Fourth, saw, heard, left, believed. Uh, read verse five with me. This, this is what I want to harp on next. Verse five says, <clears throat> he called him to go out. I'll show you the land. And in verse five, he strengthens his faith or strengthens what we should see in Abraham, namely his faith. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, not even a foot's length, excuse me, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after, the, after him, though he had no child. I'll give you a land. <laughs> Didn't have any of it. All he had was a, a burial plot, which is not quite what the promise was all about. Plot to bury his dead. That's not the idea. Uh, and he promised to give him a nation, though he had no children at all. Stephen wants to strengthen what we hear so crucially in Genesis fifteen six. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is what we see. Though he had nothing but the promises of God, he trusted God and followed after him. He obeyed what he heard, even though he didn't have anything. Whereas they're standing in the land right then and there. And still don't trust the prophets that have been brought to them. Oh, what a sadness it is that Israel missed this point. That Abraham found right standing with God, not through his obedience or his work, but through faith alone. They wouldn't have this. They had not heard of their own sinful need. And they had the same problem as everybody else. They needed to see the glory of God. The glory of God confronts us with the fact that we are not. We are devastatingly sinful and corrupt and broken, as good as we want to be. It is God who justified Abraham. It is God who made him right. And it was through faith. It was God who appears to reconcile and Abraham holds out this pattern of being made right by faith. Everybody who follows in the footsteps of Abraham is to look to the Redeemer, not just to their own ancestors. But they did not understand. So <clears throat> verse 6 through 8, I pondered this a long time. And I think I understand what it means. Verse 6 through 8, in light of the fact that Abraham, his pattern is one of faith. That is the thing that they don't do. They don't have spiritual hearing. They reject. They don't have faith in God's prophets. They don't have faith in God's law. They disobey both. And then they don't obey the Christ. They don't listen to his gospel. They reject that. The, the issue at root is they do not believe God. They do not trust him and follow after him. They don't follow after Abraham. And in light of that, 
What I believe 6 through 8 does is he strengthens the argument by showing the other portion of Abraham's life and the other promises that he heard. Listen to this in 6 through 8. It says, And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners, foreigners, strangers, in a land belonging to others. This is the same pattern, is it not? that Abraham himself would receive. He, he was a stranger in a foreign land, and he was brought in tents. Who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years? But I will judge the nation that they serve, and God said, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave the covenant of circumcision And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob, the 12 patriarchs. Not only did Abraham believe the pleasant promises of God, which were sweet and wonderful when he had absolutely nothing of them, only God's word on it. He also had to commend that confidence in God's promises to his children, because his children would be in the same exact position as him. They wouldn't receive anything in the land for many generations. In fact, what they would enter into is not a bunch of blessing in a fruitful land. They would enter into affliction. They're born in it. They were going to inherit things that were tough and difficult, and yet at the same time, believe in these, the same God and follow after Abraham before the promise was fulfilled for 400 years. So, proclaiming to a people unborn, you can go look at the end of Psalm 22 for that verbiage. This is what's happening. Abraham, what is required of him towards his children, towards his family? His life and duty was to so proclaim the faithfulness of the glorious God that he had saw that his children were won over to it. He is to give them the sign of circumcision, the only sign that they're going to have in a foreign land, uh, that God will fulfill his promises, a covenant that doesn't magically confer blessing, not all Israel is Israel, but there is a pointer to the grace of God what goes beyond. They are to have this mark in their body that points to the inner reality that they're supposed to have. Faith in this God who is going to keep this covenant with me. And so we are told about this covenant succession. That this, in circumcising his son, Isaac, and Isaac doing that to Jacob, and you'll see in in Moses' day, Moses is (laughs) scourged for not doing it. But what it shows is that there is this believing of the promises that are to come. They are going to keep covenant with this God. They're going to obey his law and trust his promises, even though they don't have any of these things yet. So Abraham, what we see in the passing on of this covenant and the embrace of it, despite all the failures of the patriarchs, is that they trusted ultimately in the deliverance that is going to come through God's promises. They are going to trust that one day their enemies will be crushed and they will be saved 
into glory, into a promised land. They would serve and worship God one day in a place where God himself would dwell. This, though they didn't have all the information, they are saved the same way that we are by Christ in this manner. But Stephen, by and large, recognizes that they did not look to the Savior. They did not look to the Redeemer of their land. They were in the land. They had the covenants. They had God's word. But when the Christ came, when the glory of God in Jesus Christ came, they did not listen. Their ears weren't circumcised. They didn't see what Abraham was all about. They were veiled in their sight. Their eyes were so blinded that they rejected all of his teachings, all of his miracles, all of his glory. They rejected the Christ, and as Paul says, they crucified the Lord of glory. The God of glory was rejected in the person of Jesus Christ. Israel could not bear to hear that theirs would be the judgment if they didn't repent. They didn't receive that. We're children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anybody, they say in John 8 or John 10. I mix those up sometimes. You can go look that up. They didn't need forgiveness by the sin bearer. We're pretty good with our laws the way that they are without our hearts being engaged in it. No, all of those laws were to be obeyed by God and were in force, yet they were to believe in the God who gave them and the sacrifice that was provided for them at that time. They were to receive these things by faith. And so, beloved, what I exhort you today is the central matter of humanity. What Abraham teaches us is the universal problem of sin. He, was, had, he, he had to be called out of the world, as it were, away from the judgment of God and called unto his promises for the only deliverance that is had. There's no other deliverance outside of Jesus Christ. There's no other savior, no other redeemer. There's only one. They at that time were to look to the glory of God and the presence of God's glory with them in Jesus Christ. It is God who reveals his glory there and there alone fully. Once Christ comes, all the rest, all the shadows pass away. The blinding glory of God has come. And so Abraham, like him, we must forsake our ways and find all of our blessings in Christ. That's the message of Abraham. That is what we must find. Let me just apply this to the supper because we have the same pattern here. This will come up again and again. The sign of the covenant is not to be merely external, but internal. We come to the table now every week, recognizing that this is a covenant sign. They had one in Israel. We have, they had multiple covenant signs, but The two that we have is baptism and the Lord's Supper. The covenant sign, that physical expression externally, means absolutely nothing unless it is inwardly appropriated. Unless there is faith in the heart, 
This is the only way to feast upon Christ and his sacrifice. This is the only way to see the glory of God. This is the only way to be dead with Christ in his death and raised with Christ in his life. If this covenant sign is merely external, it profits us absolutely nothing. The, the sign that is given to us is to be embraced in the heart by faith. That's the message of Abraham applied to the broken body and shed blood of Christ. It means that and confers all of its blessing in and through faith. And thus, when we feast, we do so in joy. The feast is not a somber meal at all. Uh, the, the proclamation is not in, in internal wrestling with my sins. Uh, really, I, I guess if you have unconfessed sins, then you, you can do that. But rather, it's a proclamation that the sin bearer has bore all my sins. It's that my sins have been laid in the grave with him by faith. And, and they have uh, not come out of the grave with my sin bearer. The reason we partake today is we proclaim the gospel that our sins are dealt with. And so we, we joyously eat the meal together. This covenant sign says, Jesus' body is broken for me. Jesus' blood is spilled for me. And I embrace that by faith. <clears throat> One last thing is, as I've been reflecting on this particular ordinance uh, one thing that I notice in, in both, and even our, uh, even the catechism will acknowledge this very soon when it talks about the Lord's Supper, is that there is a giving of thanks and setting apart of the meal. So today I'm going to give thanks before and after. I usually don't give thanks before, but uh, just like First Timothy, I think it's chapter 4 says, there is a, a holy thanks that sets apart this meal separate from our, our love feast, as it were, in, this, in the historic building. The, it, what sets this meal apart is us believing what it means for us. And so we, we pray in light of that first. So I'll pray first over the elements, and then we'll serve up, we'll feast, we'll pray, and then we'll sing together. That'll be our process for today. Um, if I could have the men join me up here.